Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is the book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast features Sue Miller at Washington County's Central Park Amphitheater. Sue Miller is the author of nearly a dozen best-selling and critically acclaimed novels. Her first two hits, The Good Mother and Inventing the Abbots, saw successful big-screen adaptions in 1988 and 1997. Her third, Family Pictures, was nominated for a National Book Critics Circle Award, and her sixth, While I Was Gone, became a popular Oprah's Book Club selection in 2000. Over the course of her distinguished career, Miller has earned a number of fellowships and other honors, including the Carl Sandburg Award and Kate Chopin Literary Award. Her newest, The Arsonist, is a suspenseful and romantic novel that explores the tensions between the summer people and locals in a small New Hampshire town, according to Booklist. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for being here tonight. I'm delighted. Ah, there we go. Um, I'm delighted to be in this area. I think I was probably conceived in St. Paul. Uh, my father was, his first job after he got his graduate degree was as a professor at McAllister College, a professor of history and literature. And then by the time I was born, we were living in Chicago because he went there. And my grandfather was for many years, about a decade from maybe the mid-30s to the mid-40s, the pastor at Plymouth Congregational Church in Minneapolis. So, and I have a big silver tray that I have inherited that was given to him and to my grandmother when they left that church. So I feel connected by um, my silver tray in any case, and then by my very genetic presence um, to this part of the country, and I'm very glad to be here. Um, I'll talk for a little bit about um, this book and some of its origins, and I'll then read for a little bit, and then I'm very happy to take questions. Um, and so I hope you'll feel free to ask me anything about sort of the writing process or this book in particular or, you know, Oprah, we were such close friends, <laughs> um, or anything that, you, that is of interest to you. Um, one of the things that often gets asked at, at events like this is, um, where do you get your ideas from? And I have a friend who said, well, when someone asks you that, you should just say uh, Natick, which is a little town outside Boston be like saying, yeah, I go to Queens to get them or something like that if you lived in New York. And it seems to me that for writers, this is probably as good an answer as any in the sense that I think often we don't know where we get our ideas from. We sort of can trace them sometimes afterwards. Oh, yeah, now I remember I was thinking about that. But a lot of the time, um, they just seem to be sort of, they come from everything in your entire life sort of combined so that, um, by the time I finish a book, it often seems to me that I've used up 
every single thing in my life and that I don't have anything more to, with which to write another book ever again, that I've used up every argument I've ever had, every sunset I've ever seen, every friend's anecdote. And actually, friends have sometimes come up to me and said, that was mine, that camping trip you wrote about. And I have to acknowledge that sometimes that it was. But there's a sort of sense of kind of, of employing everything that you know about, that you felt, every relationship you've had in some way, every enemy you've ever made, every grudge you've ever held, every person you've ever loved, you know, every cricket that you've heard. I, that there's a sense of all of that, each time um, making it onto the page, all of this material, so that you sometimes feel utterly, utterly, I think, emptied out when you're finished with a book. I usually do, actually. I usually feel as though, okay, but that was nice, writing those books, and it's too bad that I won't ever do that again. Um, and then slowly, actually more slowly, now that I'm getting older, um, the sort of well begins to fill again in some way, and I feel I, oh yes, I think I could do this and I could do that. Um, but to say that you sort of use everything up from your whole life isn't to say that it's, that it's autobiographical. For me, it never is autobiographical. It's never lifted from life. I, at one point, um, memorized um, a quote from John Cheever that I took around with me on a book tour in case someone asked me how much of my work was autobiographical, and I don't have it completely by memory anymore. Um, but what he says, and I'm quoting here, it seems to me that any confusion between autobiography and fiction abases fiction. <laughs> the role autobiography plays in fiction is precisely the role that reality plays in a dream. As you dream your ship, you perhaps know the boat, but you're going toward a coast that's quite strange. You're wearing strange clothes. The language being spoken around you is a language you don't understand, but the woman on your left is your wife. It seems to me that this not capricious, but quite mysterious union of fact and imagination one also finds in fiction. And I, I love that phrase, this not capricious. It's not arbitrary at all, but on the other hand, it's, it is very mysterious. When, you know, you're not quite sure as you're creating something why it's coming together in exactly the way it is. And so I think that really one of the questions um, people are asking of writers when they ask where do you get your ideas from is to sort of unpack that mystery, is to explain why these things are living together in this book or why anything lives together with any other thing in the books that you've written. And while I don't know that for a lot of books, I do know a few of the strands for this book. I can sort of trace them back to things in my own life um, and can, I think, also explain some of the ways in which they're sort of transformed by that dreamlike process of, of writing. Um, so imagine um, in 1988, I am in, in a summer town in northern New Hampshire where my parents um, often rented a place, and now um, my widowed father has bought a place, um, and he bought it um, without ever having seen the inside of it, because we'd seen the inside years before, and it was very beautiful, and it's very beautiful on the outside, and the fact that a man had lived there with a hundred cats, I mean, how bad could it be? <laughs> and it turned out it was nightmarishly bad. It was like a stable, only it just makes horse manure seem like you know, um, gourmet food or something like that. It was just 
the most horrible experience. And thank God there were teenagers in the family then who for $5 an hour would have done anything and did sort of anything. They shoveled this place out. But that, that was several years before. So by 1988, it's still in damp weather when you couldn't, if it was chilly out, you couldn't open the windows. There was a little air du shot that would, you know, you would, you would get a whiff. And so I was busy polyurethaning every every porous surface in the house, and some that weren't so porous. I mean, it was lucky I didn't sort of polyurethane neighbors and friends who dropped by. I was just getting it all done. And during the course of that summer, early on, there was a fire in the town next door, a similarly very beautiful town that looked up in the mountains, had more summer homes, actually, than my father's town did. And then there was another fire, and then there was another fire, and then it became apparent that these fires were being set. There could not be so many in a row. And uh, people began to be very frightened. The people, we were only five miles down the road, and it never came to our town, but we weren't sure that it wouldn't. And I can remember um, you know, being very wakeful at night. If I heard anything, I'd be up like a shot and just you, you know, checking to see what it was. And there are all kinds of noises in the country that a house can make, you know, a raccoon on the porch or or just the wind blowing something around. Um, but it was a nerve-wracking time, and it was very terrifying for the people in the town called Jefferson, New Hampshire, uh, that was actually burning. Um, it got written up very widely. The Globe carried it after the sixth or seventh fire, after maybe the twelfth or thirteenth fire, the New York Times wrote about it, and then People magazine actually came too before they're so entirely taken up with baby bumps on, on <laughs> shallow celebrities. They actually wrote about such things. And it made a good story. It was you know this beautiful little town where no one had ever locked his door, where everyone knew everyone else. And it had to be someone you knew. This arsonist had to be someone that you maybe sat down to dinner with, or you went to church with, or you'd, you know, you'd gone bowling with, or you'd gone hiking with. And people you know, armed themselves. They went on patrols at night. Um, it was a very, very scary time. Um, it ended when they arrested someone whose name you could never use in fiction. His name was Lance La Lumiere, um, and, the, and the fires ended at that point. Um, but um, the, it was, I'm, I'm going to just read you a short passage that the editor of the town paper uh, uses to sort of explain what's going on in the town. And he's one of the th sort of three characters I take up in this book. His name is Bud. He's been a political writer uh, for the Denver Post based in Washington, D.C. And he's given all that up in a kind of midlife crisis and bought this small town paper, which he runs entirely by himself and with sort of volunteer help from people. But, you know, he takes it to the printer. He he delivers it, he writes most of the stories, he takes the photographs, but this is his note about what's going on in this town at this time. Here's what an arsonist on the loose does to a small town. First, of course, everyone is afraid. That could happen anywhere, but in a small town, the person you're afraid of is bound to be someone you know, someone you probably see regularly at the store, at church, at the post office. The sense of community that's the bedrock of small town life is broken suddenly. People look at one another with suspicion and fear, friend to friend, father to son, wife to husband. Everyone is on edge. In our town, the fires have almost always been set at night, so people don't sleep well, listening for the footstep outside on the porch. 
the splash of kerosene or gasoline or charcoal starter at the doors or windows. Families take turns. Tonight, I get to sleep, and you stay awake to watch. Tomorrow night, you'll sleep, and I'll stay up. Everyone is exhausted. The men in the volunteer fire department are exhausted, too. They've risen again and again from their beds and driven across town to try to put out fires that were set with a confounding intention of causing maximum damage. People have armed themselves. We're a community of many hunters, so that wasn't a difficult step. But it was a radical one, getting the guns out before hunting season, having them always loaded and close at hand. It's resulted in at least one accident, fortunately not fatal. But more important, it's brought the fear of one another to that extreme of possibility. If he comes here, I will shoot him. Or worse, let him come here. I want to shoot him. So that's one strand, the fires, which I altered. Um, I decided I would um, make the fire the arsonist interested in burning only the houses of the summer people in this town, because I thought it would be a, a way for me to sort of look at the um, usually unexamined tensions that exist between the year-round folks and the summer people who come. And would sort of also, um, for me, raise the question of whose home this place really was. Does it belong to the people who love to come there summer after summer and who employ the year-round folks to do various chores for them? Or does it belong to the people who live there year-round and maybe don't appreciate it in quite the same way because it's their everyday life? So that whole question, and then the sort of exposure of the, those kind of tensions that seem to stay submerged, um, that seem to be something that particularly the summer people in that kind of relationship don't want to acknowledge, that there are such tensions. So there are several scenes in which those tensions rise to the surface and are made apparent. The other strand that I can trace um, occurs because I had a son who lived for, I think it was about 12 years in Africa. And he was doing NGO work, educational NGO work. And from time to time, I would say to him, um, so do you think you'll, you know, you'll ever come home? Or when do you think you might be coming home? And he would say, I have a home, Mom. And my home is in Africa. And, um, and it made me wonder, actually, about the whole question of home with regard to him and with regard to a lot of his friends who you know, live very far away, live in other countries, that whole sort of um, question of what home is to such a person, whether the, there's, the home has that same importance in this kind of globalized world we're living in. So I invented a character um, whose name is Frankie Rowley, a woman in her mid-40s who's been working in Africa doing aid work with hunger, with malnutrition for 15 years and is pretty burned out and comes back to this town, this town where these fires slowly begin to be set, um, where her parents have a summer home. They actually have a home that's been in the family for centuries, um, a farmhouse, um, but it's become a summer home over the years. And her parents have retired to it now, so she joins them up there. Um, and she's pretty sure she's never going back to Africa, but she has no idea, no idea what comes next for her in life. So there was, that was that connection, and the, the changes between my son and Frankie are pretty obvious. First of all, the gender change, and the kind of work, and then the kind of anxiety she has, which he, he just, about what she's been doing, and all those sorts of questions, which he did not have. And then the last strand that I am very aware of, intensely aware of, 
um, comes from the fact that my father died of Alzheimer's disease um, in the early 90s, and I was in charge of him in the last three years of his life, and so I really watched his decline over those years. Um, and I, you know, I wrote about it um, in nonfiction in a book about Alzheimer's disease and about how it affected him and how it affected me. Um, but I've used it in several books, fictionally. I've changed things around and altered things, but some things are pretty much um, lifted from my own experience, changed, given to other people, obviously. Um, one of the things I thought about at the time was um, how it would have been if my mother had still been alive, if she had been the one in charge of him, because she was a very um, flamboyant, narcissistic person, very charming sometimes, um, but very easily put upon. And I, the, the idea of her sort of taking care of my father, whom she adored, um, was an utter impossibility. I simply couldn't imagine it, actually. And it made me sort of think about how much more, more difficult it would be to be taking care of a spouse. So Frankie's parents are the people who, who um, sort of embody that side of the story. Her father, Alfie, who's just retired up here uh, to Pomeroy, this town, is, has suddenly become much more symptomatic since his retirement. And her mother, Sylvia, is made very uncomfortable by that. She's not sure they should have retired, that she, she fears she's going to be you know, taking care of him in this town, which you know gets very cold in the winter and is kind of isolated at that point in time. So um, that too just made its way in as it as it's made its way in, but was kind of dreamed differently, was was mysteriously and yet not capriciously changed. And these three things merge in some sense or another in the scene that I'd like to read to you from, um, if I can find it, having lost my little marker, I'm afraid. Um, and it's a scene that takes place um, in a house down the hill from Frankie's parents' house. Her sister, Liz, and her husband, Clark, are building a house close by. And since the arsons have started, they've asked Frankie to go down and stay there because it, they don't like the idea of it um, sitting empty for all that time. So Frankie's been down there, and on this particular day, uh, she's been doing some work there. She's, um, that's sort of part of what she's decided she'll do. So she's been doing sheetrocking. Uh, she's been goop, putting the sheetrock goop on over the sheetrock tape. And she's just about finished that work um, when she hears something outside. She went back in to clean herself up. She had just finished washing the little crusts of dried goop from her face and hands and arms in the bathroom when she heard slow, hesitant footsteps on the porch. She froze. It felt as though her heart shifted in her chest. She willed her breathing to be even as she hung her towel carefully on the hook next to the sink as she stepped into the big room. A man stood at the open door, a dark shape behind the screen. Even as she drew her breath sharply in, she recognized the shadowy outline, her father. Daddy, she said, her relief caught in her voice. She stepped across the kitchen and opened the screen door to let him in. But when she stood facing him, the open screen door at her side, he was unmoving, looking at her in what seemed like puzzlement. His appearance was a bit derelict. His shirt was unironed, and he'd missed a few spots shaving. Come in. Come into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. She gestured theatrically. This didn't help, apparently. He did step in, but he stopped just inside the door, looking around as though he were unfamiliar with the place. 
And then she thought that probably, in a sense, he was. The last time he'd seen it was before Clark got the sheetrock up, she was pretty sure. It looks so different now that it might be confusing to him. In any case, she kept talking. She would have said anything to keep the sense of friendly chatter going, to give him time. Time for what? To remember her? It was the first time this idea had occurred to her that he might not recognize her, and it struck her how far she'd come in her thinking about her father since her arrival. The many small things she'd noticed and talked about with Liz, his absenteeism in any group larger than two, which was to say, any group, his repetitive returning to the few things that compelled him, the prize he was reading for, the fires, the situation of each of his children, his confusion, his occasional lostness, most of all, the way he looked a good deal of the time, the frequent deadness behind his eyes. She got him inside, seated at the table. She got him to consent to tea. While she set the kettle on the stove, while she struck a match and lit the burner, while she lifted down the glass jar of tea bags from the open shelf, she kept up a running stream of talk. Jabber, really. Just anything that came to her. What she'd been doing all day, pointing out the whitish patches of drying joint compound. The news she'd heard on the radio, the possibility of rain. He was watching her cautiously throughout, nodding sometimes. When she came to sit with him to wait for the water to boil, there was a little silence. He was frowning at her, as though something about her was confusing or disturbing to him. He leaned forward, almost squinting. He said, did you make me come here? This seemed so absurd that she couldn't help laughing. With my magical powers, do you mean? His eyes widened. Do you, do you, are you? No, no, I'm just teasing, Dad. I don't have any powers, none. He didn't look reassured, and she made her voice gentle. Maybe you just wanted to see me. Maybe you just came for a visit. His face relaxed. Yes, that must have been it. He looked up at her, smiling. Maybe I thought I'd like some tea. Well, let me take care of that. Easily done. She stood and busied herself, setting up a little tray, poking around on the shelves and in the lower cupboards, assembling cups, saucers, milk, sugar, two spoons, one, two old faded cloth napkins from a wicker basket on one of the shelves. The tea kettle whistled and she poured water over the bags, then carried the tray to the table. Ceremoniously, she set the things out for him, for herself. She poured the tea and sat down. As she added the purling milk into her cup, she noted that he was putting spoonful after spoonful of sugar into his. She decided to say nothing. As one, they raised their cups, they sipped. Too hot, she thought. Goldilocks. He set his down too and sat back and looked around again. Then he smiled at her. He said, sometimes I get confused, you may have noticed. Frankie took a deep breath, she was so surprised, so unready for this admission. But she wanted to be steady for him. She said, I have, Dad, yes. I think it's something to do with my memory. Probably it's not quite as good as it used to be. Well, whose is? He said this jauntily, cheerfully. So true, she said. They were silent for a minute. She felt the air stir and looked out the window at the dark sky over the rising meadow. He cleared his throat as if to call her back. But mine is getting rapidly worse, he said. Yes, I think that is true. She looked back at him. In spite of his appearance, he was there. She could see it in his eyes. I think it's likely I have Alzheimer's disease, he said. You know what that is, don't you? I do. 
It was a fascinating story. I read it. He was almost smiling. What story? Oh, one of the books, the books for the prize, the prize I'm reading for. The Harper Prize. That's right, a fine book, explaining it, how the brain is slowly more or less strangled, it would seem. She didn't know what to say. In some ways, he sounded so much like himself, interested in this new subject he wanted to master. He had some more tea and set his cup down. Fascinating, too, to be on the receiving end of it. Oh, Dad. No, no, he said, no pity. You know the Larkin poem. I don't. He laughed, his sudden gentle apology of a laugh that tilted his head slightly back. I don't either mo anymore, but for a few lines. What do they imagine, the old fools? He smiled. That's me, he said, an old fool. Larkin describes the way one thinks as one descends, the way the past and the present become confused, and dreams in the mix. It's quite true, I think. He sat for a moment, looking at nothing, the table, the teacup, the blank look returned to his face, and then he seemed to gather himself. The last line answers the question, he said to her. What question? What do they imagine? He raised his finger, as he often did, she thought, a gesture she would remember later. We shall know. She didn't say anything. Your mother and I, we can't really talk about it. But I want you to know this, that I do understand it. I know what's happening to me. All right. Sylvia and I, he trailed off and shook his head. He looked up out the window where the trees were bending sideways under the sudden audible lashing of the wind. He said softly, odd way to disappear. You're not disappearing. Oh, he raised his eyes to her. Yes, I am. When your brain changes, you become another. There's a story in the book about a man with a brain injury, a trauma, a sweet man, gentle, who becomes profane, lewd. This will happen more slowly to me, and doubtless in a different way, but like him, I will disappear. The consciousness I've cultivated with, well, with so much vanity, I suppose. He lifted his chin and laughed once, lightly. We'll go. He sat, looking at his hands, holding his teacup. After a moment, he said, it raises a question, doesn't it? When a person is changing, as I am, at what point are they no longer who they were? The person, the person is partly the structure of the brain, it seems. So I will be someone else. I will cross a line at some point. It will be a long time, Dad. You have lots of time still to be you. Her voice was flat, defiant. I think you're trying to make me feel better, Frankie. He smiled and looked utterly like himself, Alfie, her father. Well, why wouldn't I, she said. Don't, his voice was gentle. After a moment, she said, all right. What I'm trying to say to you is that it won't be me it's happening to anymore. It simply won't matter, not to me, not to who I've been before this all my life. And that, my dear, is a comfort to me, cold comfort. She could hear the anger in her voice. What comfort, he said. She reached across the table and put her hand on his. He turned his up underneath hers and held it. They sat that way for a moment. Then he released her hand and sat back. She felt a need to keep him talking, to turn the conversation to anything else, really, but to keep it going. How's the rest of your reading, the reading for the prize? Ah, he said. 
and with pleasure visible in his face and audible in his voice, he launched himself. He spoke of another book he thought, he might, that he thought might be put forward and the reasons why. When she had asked the right number of questions, when they'd fallen into a silence she was more comfortable with, she said, shall we walk back up together? What a nice offer, he said. I'll just be a minute. She went into the bathroom and quickly brushed her hair, which had curled wildly in the humid air. She put on lipstick. Then she went into the bedroom to change out of her work clothes, spattered here and there with dried joint compound. She was quick. She was aware of him waiting in the kitchen. She worried that he'd get up and leave without her, which would be fine, except that he'd agreed to wait. And she wasn't sure he'd remember that. But he was still sitting at the table when she emerged from the bedroom. My sweet father, she thought, thinking of his bravery and talking to her about his illness, of his elegance in turning then so easily, for her sake, really, back to the prize. She chose not to think for the moment of the various ways he'd creeped her out over the last few weeks. He looked up at her. I meant to tell you, he said, there was another fire. I know, Dad. No, another fire. That's what I came here for, to tell you that. She stood there, momentarily speechless. This had moved too quickly for her, this, his shift from being so present to this, now, which she assumed was old news about one of the fires that she already knew of. But then it occurred to her that there could have been another fire, a fourth fire, or would it be the fifth? But there was no good way to ascertain that with him, was there? No question that would make it clear. Well, that's just awful news, isn't it, she said, hoping she sounded concerned enough. Yes, it is, he said. They got up. Together they walked slowly up the road to the old farmhouse, chatting about the weather, about Liz's children, about the first of the wild blueberries just ripening. A perfectly reasonable conversation. The rain started, lightly, just as they got to the back porch. Sylvia looked up from her desk in the corner of the living room as they came in from the kitchen. Her eyes tightened and moved quickly from one of them to the other. Well, this is an unexpected pleasure. She set down her pen. I would have called, except Frankie held her hands up. No phone. Was Alfie down with you? Sylvia turned to him. You went down to visit? There was something sharp in her tone. Yes, Alfie and Frankie said it together. Sylvia's lips pursed. I wish you told me, she said, after a second or two. She looked at her watch. Well, may I offer you a drink, she said to Frankie. She stood up. It's almost five. This would be on the up and up. I will, if you'll join me. I certainly will. Alfie, a drink? No, no, I'm going to read for a bit, I think. Frankie followed her mother into the kitchen and sat down at the small white table. She looked out at the rain, falling gently but steadily now. Her mother got an ice tray out of the refrigerator and stood at the sink, noisily whacking the cubes out. She fixed each of them a gin and tonic with a wedge of lime. She set out a plate and put crackers on it and a thick slice of hard cheese. She brought this over to the table and sat down opposite Frankie. She turned on the light hanging on the wall over the table. Harsh lines leapt to her face. What a gray, unpleasant day it's turned into, she said, looking out the window. What have you been doing all day, Sylvia asked. Oh, sheet rocking and rolling, she said. And then to Sylvia's quizzical face, applying joint compound to all the sheetrock seams and the exposed screw heads at Liz's house. Ah, she said. That doesn't sound like much fun. It's something to do. It makes me feel helpful, which I'm grateful for. Yes, I can certainly understand that. Can you? 
Alfie's not the only one who retired, you know. Of course, I do know that. Though she hadn't given it much thought, her mother's work, what it might have meant to her to give it up. Somehow they'd all always seen her work as primarily utilitarian in a matter of finances. They needed the money. It was Alfie's work they talked about at the dinner table. Alfie's work that led them from one home to another. Alfie's work that was important. So what do you imagine for yourself in your retirement, she asked. I suppose I can't say, really, but something, something that will let me find a way to feel at home here. This startled Frankie further, this turn of phrase. But don't you feel at home? I mean, it's been your summer home for so long and your family's. That's so, of course that's so. But summer was, has always been vacation time, time away from home. She sipped at her drink and set it down. No, the person who feels at home here is Alfie. He loved it from the get-go. She cut herself a slice of cheese and pushed the plate over towards Frankie. Without looking at her daughter, she said, he just meandered down? Yes, I'm not sure he knew why exactly. This was the first time Frankie had acknowledged aloud to her mother that she knew there was something wrong with Alfie. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm happy to. They were quiet a moment. I should have kept an eye on him, but I, I just didn't. Sylvia sighed. Is it Alzheimer's disease, do you think? There, she'd said the words, too. And Sylvia didn't flinch. I don't know, she said. He has an appointment in a couple of weeks to see a new doctor here for some tests. Frankie said to her mother, he thinks it is Alzheimer's. What do you mean? Alfie thinks it is? She sounded incredulous. Yes, he's read about it. Well, haven't we all? But he's got a book about it, a prize book. Anyway, he was very articulate about it just now. He knows he's, she made a face, disappearing is the word he used. He said that to you? There was something so sharp in her tone that Frankie thought she'd made a mistake, that she shouldn't have started to talk about this with Sylvia. But she'd launched herself. She couldn't retreat now. Yes, I thought he was very brave. Sylvia was smiling, a bitter smile, no doubt. She had a long swallow of her gin and looked out the window. He wouldn't dream of discussing it with me. Frankie was silent for a long moment. Then she said, I'm sorry, mother. Oh, God, Frankie, don't be sorry. It's just the way it is, isn't it? You're his confidante, she pronounced it in a very French way. And I'm his warden, and he's my prisoner. She laughed quickly. Unless it's the other way around, that I'm his prisoner. She smiled at Frankie, a grim smile. Either way, it's no fun standing guard, asking him where he's going every time he leaves. Frankie didn't know what to say. Finally, she offered, well, we're all standing guard these days, she shrugged. It reminds me of Africa, actually. We're not quite at the razor wire stage, but one or two more fires and maybe we'll get there. She sipped at her drink, then thought of a change of subject. Oh, Dad told me there was another fire. There was, the Avery's place. They came home from a party, I guess, and the house was just about gone. The firemen got there with not much to do. Say they were living there. Yes, they'd been up about a week. Jesus, what? Well, this is different, don't you think? I mean, this is really different. What do you mean? Just before, the other houses that burned were empty. Really empty, no one was living in them. It wasn't only that they were unoccupied for the evening like this one. They were still closed up for the season. So this seems scarier, as if he's no longer being so careful, I guess you'd have to say. It makes you think that someone might actually be home next time. Someone could get hurt. 
Next time, Sylvia said, looking out the window and then back at Frankie, I suppose it will just go on. After all, why stop now? After a moment, Frankie said, I suppose the other possibility is that he'd be scared off by how defensive everyone is getting, by the alarm systems and the locks and whatnot. Maybe, Sylvia said. Are you at all frightened, down at Liz's, all alone? No, Frankie said, and then she remembered, well, that's not quite true. I had a little moment of panic when I heard Daddy on the porch, actually, and even for a few seconds when I saw him, before I recognized him. Nothing like in Africa, though. No. And it was nothing like. Still, she had the impulse to defend Afri Africa, to say, I wasn't truly scared there. But she knew how much being white, being privileged, being an expat, had kept her from needing to feel fear. So, Sylvia said, you're not sure if you're going back. Her eyes were suddenly keen on Frankie. No. No, you're not going? No, I'm not sure. Are you just, what, she lifted her hand, tired of it all, worn out? I am tired, yes. Not so much of it, but tired, really tired. She had another swig of the gin. Was there someone, someone you were involved with there? Why do you ask? You seem, Sylvia frowned, sad in some deep way, I suppose. Not just tired, sad. I am sad. Frankie tried smiling at her. Then it's over, whatever, this other person? Oh, it was over before it began. Oh, was he, is he married? No, or he is, but he and his wife don't live together. They haven't for a long time. She's in England anyway, but that's not the point. Are there children? They're grown, more or less. He doesn't see them often. So he is available after a fashion. No, Frankie laughed quickly. No, he's not. Available is exactly what he's not. Or I couldn't have him anyway. He wouldn't. She drew her breath in sharply. She found herself unable to breathe normally. She realized she was afraid of weeping in front of her mother. But not for Philip. She knew that. For all of it. For everything she couldn't have in Africa. Once in her last days supervising a clinic in Sudan, she'd been reviewing the protocols with the staff. There was one nurse whose skills she was sure of, a woman in her 20s, she had deputized, though she knew this was disrespectful to the older women. Esther will remind you of all of this when I leave, she had said to the group. One of the older women had spoken then, her voice flat and bitter with anger. When you go, you will be gone. And she had felt it then again, the way she was forever a Mzungu, the way she lived in a different element from them, the way she was always, to them, to herself, going, because nothing there was hers. It couldn't be hers. He wouldn't, her mother's voice was gentle, and it called her back. Just, he wouldn't, I guess, nor, in fact, would I. She smiled what she supposed was a bitter smile. Tired, yes, her mother was right, but as much tired of herself as of anything else. There was, I guess you'd call it, a built-in impossibility. Neither of us was home, after all. Neither could really beckon the other into his life in any sense. What life? might have been the operative question. Though I suppose even that wouldn't have mattered if we'd felt something, oh, I don't know. It's always a mystery, isn't it? Sylvia was looking out the window. She'd sat back away from the light and her face was wistful, Frankie would have said, almost beautiful. Frankie was too surprised to speak for a moment, a gift from her mother, an invitation. What is, she said. Oh, 
How anyone musters the will or the courage or the foolhardiness to imagine a lasting thing. And then why that turns out so well for some people and so badly for others, she shrugged. Outside, the rain was suddenly heavier. A refill, she said. She held up her glass, empty but for the ice cubes and the shredded lime wedge. I guess not, Frankie said. She held up hers, still half full. Ah, I should start supper anyway, she said. You'll stay? And not even thinking about whether she was hungry, she said yes. That's it. <clears throat> that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Sue Miller and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from a woman wondering how Miller feels about wrapping up her novels nicely at the end. I have a friend who says that uh that writing a novel is like knitting an argyle sock the size of a football field. And I think it's, that's very apt because you know, what you're doing from moment to moment is just very tiny, word by word, you know, bird by bird, as Annie Lamott has it. Um, but I think I like to knit a sock with a hole in it, fundamentally. I mean, that's, um, I like there to be some sense of, um, you know, I don't, as in life, I don't like everything to be entirely tied up together. So. But I must say, um, along with you, I've heard more complaints about the ending of this book than of almost any other. Well, that's not quite true, but uh, there's only a couple of others. Um, so maybe no one will want to read it. All right. <laughs> Our next audience member notes that the arsonist has several strands and asks Miller if she wrote the novel chronologically or by character. I didn't write it straight through, but I almost never do. That is to say, I sort of think, okay, I gotta go back and do more of this because I, I can't justify this, this being here without something else going on. Um, but I did move, very, move from one to the other um, throughout. I mean, I, I started writing about Sylvia, but I knew that the story was gonna be about all three of these characters, and Alfie too, four really, but I didn't take up, I didn't work from his point of view at all. Um, so I moved, I moved uh, right from the start back and forth among, among the characters. Um, when I was revising, I sort of took each story out and worked very carefully to make sure that they, each of them separately, sort of held together as a narrative of what that person's experience was over this kind of tight period of time. And then, you know, so giving, their, giving the history behind it. But um, I did work on the whole thing. Another audience member mentions a character named Bud and wonders how he was inspired. Bud buys the newspaper from a guy who's lived there for a very long time and, and run the newspaper for a very long time. And when he first comes, Bud sort of moves around very fluidly among a bunch of different women in the town. And this man who's owned the paper before, named Pete, says basically that he, he has to stop doing that, that he can't live in a small town like this uh, where he's going to keep encountering these people. And you know, he just needs to be much more much more careful about the way he's conducting himself. And at that moment, Bud kind of realizes that he's really done this thing, that he's really moved to this town and bought this paper and this is it. Um, it's sort of a sense of being confined a little bit. But um, um, I liked the, the town as really a character. I mean, I sort of thought of the town in this book 
as being the fourth or the fifth character because it has a kind of, um, everyone is very aware of the town and the way it works or isn't working and what's supposed to be happening as opposed to what is happening. And I think some of their consciousness is just that the town is so threatened at the, at the moment too. But, but I think some of it also is that these people are new to the town and they're making some adjustments to it, but in particular, because he knows he's gonna stay on, stay on there where he intends to in any case. Our next question is about what writers Sue Miller looks to for inspiration. I love the work of Alice Munro, which almost every writer in, <laughs> in English will, will say. I love Ian McEwan's work um, because of a kind of, I'm interested in the way violence intrudes itself into his work and, and sort of raises ethical and moral questions all over the place and even religious questions. Um, um, I like the work, well, for the oldies, I, I, I love Tolstoy and Chekhov. I love the work of Willa Cather. Um, I love the work of an Australian writer named Helen Garner, a very interesting writer. Um, so I sort of have a lot of different people. I have a, there's a writer named Brian Morton whose books I often, you know, they're, they're people whose books I read when I'm writing that I feel comfortable reading because they write so differently from the way I write. So I don't risk being imitative, but their work thrills me and makes me feel ah, that fiction can do this and fiction can do that. So I get very excited and it makes me, if I'm feeling um, a sense of my own limitations, somehow their, whatever they do very, very well is exciting to me and makes me think of possibilities rather than impossibilities, which I sometimes get stuck thinking about. Along the same lines, this question asker wonders what authors and books Sue Miller just can't wait to get her hands on. Yeah, there are. I'm, you know, I, and Alice Monroe is one of them, and I'm very sad to know that there will be no more new books from Alice Monroe. I mean, she's just said she's going to stop. Um, I just read uh, the new book by Jane Smiley, which I found really wonderful. And I have a student, I think, is just a marvelous writer. Her name is Elizabeth McCracken, a former student of mine a long, long time ago. And she's actually been nominated for, I think, the National Book Critics Circle Award this year, um, along with, um, a, anyway, so there are a bunch of people whose work I, I really get thrilled about, um, the notion that it's coming soon, <laughs> sort of, um, and, um, and, and really can't wait. And that's always been true. Those names have changed over the years. I mean, I remember um, you know, loving the work of some people that I sort of felt I turned away from at some point. Not that I outgrew them necessarily, but I just didn't feel as interested anymore at a certain point in time. I, for instance, Joan Didion, her fiction was, a, I just thought was wonderful and I, I felt enthralled to it for a while. And it's a very uh, laconic, uh, flat, kind of very elegant fiction. And I sort of, at a, after a certain point, I just didn't want to read it anymore. I love her nonfiction, always, always. I think she's a brilliant, brilliant nonfiction writer, but I don't, I, you know, but for a while I think I was trying to write the way Joan Didion wrote because I thought that was the way one wrote fiction, essentially. And then I changed my mind. <laughs> this audience member asked Miller how she develops her characters. Is she pulling from her own experience and trying to answer questions from her own life? And I think it's more really that I'm, that I'm trying to pose questions. Um, that I'm trying to sort of um, think of problems and issues that people struggle with at various stages of their lives and sort of moving back and forward, sometimes moving to people who are a lot older than I am, sometimes moving to people who are a lot younger than I am, 
but trying to sort of think of a particular place and time and the way certain issues come at you in different circumstances in that place and in that time. And just trying to hold, hold, hold these, these things up to light and turning them this way and that way with various characters through, um, through people who are, who, who are not me, but who are struggling with these things in ways that really most of the time I never have, but um, that I'm interested in, really interested in. Yeah, and even, you know, I mean, one of the great pleasures for me in writing is to imagine being, you know, another person and to sort of, because God knows I get tired of being myself. And, um, you know, in, and to give whoever that person is the sort of, sort of best um, imaginative uh, characterization on the page that I can possibly do. So even there's a book that, um, you know, has a murderer in it, um, someone who commits murder when he's a young man and a very sort of vulnerable young man. And then I have him at a point later in his life explaining that. And as I was having him explain it, I was really trying to give it my all, exactly what, what he might have felt and how he might have felt about doing that act, you know, killing someone. And not that he thought it was all right, but that he thought it was somehow essential at that point to him, that he, and inevitable somehow, and that he, you know, lived a life in the wake of that in a certain way. And that was really, you know, a stretch for me. <laughs> so, uh, but, but something I really enjoyed committing myself to getting on the page, so. And I felt, I felt bad for the young man he had been, very bad for him. This question asker wonders, what motivates Miller to keep writing? You know, I think it's really the only thing I've really been ever very good at. And it's, it's, it's very hard sometimes to get going, but when I'm doing it, I'm incredibly interested in it. And, um, you know, I think all writers feel, it's, it's a very, to me, a very um, perverse w way to live in some sense, because you never, you know, one day you read it and you think, this is just awful you know, really feel that way, and then you think, you know, the next day you think, oh, this is actually quite, quite good, this will work, this will work, or I can do this and make it work. But that sort of unsteadiness, personal unsteadiness, the sort of, um, the kind of, my inability in, in any case to, um, to, to move forward in a steady way psychologically myself is really hard. So sometimes I do, do wish I didn't have to do it again. But on the other hand, um, I enjoy living outside myself and these characters. I enjoy constructing the stories which you know, sort of are the embodiment of sort of ideas I have in some way or another and that I don't necessarily want to resolve. That, you know, I want there to be some um, something lingering, some lingering questions that sort of leave a way for a reader to enter it, you know, and sort of try to figure it out for himself or herself. But um, it's a kind of play. I mean, it really is like playing. It's like what little children do. You know, you have a doll and you have the doll say this and then you have the other doll say that. You know, I remember my, my son when he would play in the basement, you know, they just spent all their time um, preparing to play, really. Essentially, they, would, they were writing. They would say, I'll come in and I'll say this, and then I'll hit you. No, no, wait. I'll come in, and, and then they just go back and forth over it, and that's, that's really what you're doing when you're writing, in a way, too. You, you, you take your characters and you have them do certain things and say certain things to each other, and then you redo it, and you redo it, and you redo it again, and until it seems real to you until it seems like the, the very thing that they would say and do. There's a wonderful line from 
Flannery O'Connor, where she said her one of she she sent something to one of her relatives who had been asking to see some of her work, and her her it was an aunt or something sent it back and said, well, that just shows you how some people will do. And O'Connor says, and that's what fiction is about. It's about what some people will do, just will do in spite of everything. The sort of, you know, looking at the deep perversity of the way we behave and the things we do and the, the ways in which we, you know, confound our own intentions and bollocks things up for ourselves. Um, and that's what I think really most fiction has always been about, you know, the ways in which people stumble, the pickles they get into because of exactly who they are. Um, so I like that. <laughs> I like their pickles better than my own. Our last question of the night comes from an audience member who really enjoyed the memoir Miller wrote about her father and wonders if she would write any more nonfiction books. The book about my father was nonfiction. It was about his descent into Alzheimer's disease and it attempted to also explain Alzheimer's disease as a sort of what was going on in the brain and in terms of what he was doing. And, um, and so it was nonfiction, it was short. And the question is really whether I would think of writing nonfiction again. And I haven't, but I'm interested in it at this point in my life. I have a granddaughter now who's six. And um, so, you know, I'm sort of an old grandmother, although I think there are more and more of us around. But my, you know, my own grandmother was about 50 when I was born or something. So she was around for a very long time in my life. And I just feel as though, um, I'd like to write things down for her that are not intended for her now at all. I don't know that I could write for a child, but that would be sort of nonfiction stories about, you know, sort of the, my life and um, the life of sort of the people that she never met who've already died in the family, but not sort of uh, reminiscences or something like that, but really essays that sort of look at things in, in some, as with the book about my father, that sort of takes some angle in. Um, so, I'm interested to do it. I'm not sure I will, but <laughs> but I am interested. At this point, I'm not working on anything because there are various sort of things going on in my life. So I'm not quite sure what I'll take up next, and that might be something. And I guess that's it. But thank you all very much for being here. Well, that's it from our Washington County Central Park Amphitheater event with Sue Miller in Woodbury. Catch our next Club Book event with Hampton Sides at Hennepin County's Southdale Library in Edina on Monday, October 13th at 7 p.m. Meet Hampton Sides, get your questions answered and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, Find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just made too. Thanks again to those who make clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, the Crown Plaza Hotel, St. Paul Riverfront, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.